0: The last panel was on Black Lives Matter. This panel is uh, Donald Trump and Evangelicals. This was uh, what I referred to last night as the co of, uh, of the election season that all reporters and op-ed writers tried to, uh, tried to crack. So um, we'll start with um, Michelle Borstein of the Washington Post, and then we'll move to Jason DeRose from NPR, and uh, Eddie Glaude of Princeton, and Deborah of Missouri School of Journalism, and then uh, Deborah Mason, and then Jeff Charlotte of uh, Dartmouth College. So we'll uh, start right away with Michelle uh, Borstein.
1: Thank you, everybody. I have a little cold, so I'll try not to gross everybody out up here. Um, So can you hear me if I sit back like this, or no? Okay, can I take it out? No. Okay, I'll lean over. Um, So I just wanted to say that um, evangelicals Coverage of evangelicals I think is a huge topic because it's like the ultimate vexing religion reporter uh, issue of our time. Um, The desire to cover cover evangelicals and, and efforts to do it well have kind of defined the last quarter century of such reporting. It embodies our struggle to successfully understand layers of doctrine, politics, identity, and tribe. I fantasized about becoming a religion reporter when I graduated college in the early 90s but opted not to pursue that track because religion had been so sidelined in the mainstream culture and in newsrooms where I wanted to succeed. It was the role of evangelicals in electing George Bush in 2000 and his continued public conversation with them that marks the rise in my mind of religion, modern religion reporting, and when I began to chart my path back to this goal. My partner in religion reporting these days at The Post, Sarah Pulliam Bailey, reflects the next wave. A homeschooled a homeschooled in a politically conservative evangelical home, Sarah became a religion reporter in part because she didn't like the way evangelicals were portrayed in the mainstream media. The stories didn't match the reality that she lived. Today, there seem to be more, an, in, an increasingly um, large, I want to say large in religion reporter world, a handful of religion reporters who are partially motivated, like Sarah was, by concern about the way evangelicals were covered. Evangelicals seem to in some way embody the challenges for modern religion reporting. Their size, beliefs, makeup, lack of uh, coherent kind of leadership, and even basic beliefs are debated. In the stories that we, that we went through in the packet, which I know everybody didn't read, but we were trying to kind of look at uh, themes, <clears throat> I see, um, so here's, a f- here's how I see a few of the themes. One is the push to explain what looked like dissonance, these people say they believe in X, but here they are ignoring that. This is a, ma- I think this was a major theme in a lot of religion reporting. Uh, we looked at an NPR story in January that's headline says Trump struggles to make the sale to evangelicals. And the lead says he's, he's stumbling. Lower on, the, it says this, dis- this those discrepancies haven't mattered yet to many evangelicals and also didn't seem to phase many uh, Liberty students either. There are a lot of these stories that focused on the values many evangelicals said were their priorities. I did this as well in some of my stories. Um, in January, I got a call from a longtime source named Randy Brinson. Some of some of the religion reporters might know. He's an Alabama doctor and a Republican activist who specializes in um, mobilizing evangelical voters. He has one of the largest evangelical um, email lists in America, about th- um, 35 million. Uh, this was in January. He was apoplectic about Trump. He was calling because he had a video of Trump talking positively about the pornography industry. He's done, once, he's done once this gets out he told me of course that didn't happen and I wrote a story in February called Why Donald Trump is Tearing Evangelicals Apart Brinson was quoted saying it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen it's, it's like this total reversal of the shepherd and flock but not everybody was surprised by this um, I spent some time this spring with uh, the African American evangelical rapper Lecrae and went with him to the studio of Eric Metaxas' his show in New York we were talking. Um, I think this was maybe like April, and we were talking about um, Trump. And I said some flip comment about oh, that's surprising or something, and he said uh, that doesn't surprise me at all because I'm always in Elmira, New York. Like he he goes around the country more than we do, so he wasn't said he wasn't surprised at all. Um, the second theme I saw looks like, and this is a broader issue, but it really comes out in the coverage of evangelicals, is this struggle to hold, this is sort of a lifetime struggle, I think, for me and everybody, is to hold intention-contradictory um, ideas. We looked at a story in The Atlantic written by one of the smartest religion reporters that we have, John Merritt, whose father was the, the leader of the Southern Baptist Convention, so he's very steeped in um, white evangelical things. He focused on how the leadership he grew up with, the religious right, was fractured and ineffectual. And his piece looked at um, how the political, th- that focus on political power in recent decades led evangelicals to follow someone who appeared to violate their theology. And, and uh, his analysis, he concluded by saying he thought that was a positive thing because maybe pol- um, the movement would, would become less political. And I think coverage of evangelicals and often religious themes in general, um, and again, I I try to watch for this, I do this myself, I'm sure, um, kind of sets it apart from coverage of other things, which I think is something maybe we could talk about from other forces like sports, sex, politics, things that really should be, that are messy and contradictory and shouldn't be kind of... uh, I don't know, flattened, which we do sometimes with religion. Our religious lives are contradictory. We crave different things and narratives based on our own lives and genetic makeups and personalities. There's a continued belief that theology and politics to win are at odds when they're not. Um, so I, I kind of struggled with, and I see this a lot in the coverage, this idea of like calling out, calling out evangelicals. Um, this, con- this thing about being a contradictory, messy human being is, is part of our hourly lives so I think that's kind of a challenge some we can talk about that a little bit more. The third big theme in the coverage is um, demographics. <clears throat> we ran at least two long essays at the Washington Post from evangelical leaders describing the word as becoming meaningless or problematic. Uh, this is a major, major challenge for us when we talk about, uh, when Americans talk about religion. Um, and this is something maybe particular to to journalists. We we want to use the words that people relate to. That people, like someone said on the previous panel. Um, you know, if you call yourself that, so we want to use the, lang- the language that is you know informal and conversational and how people understand themselves. So, you know, what what is an evangelical? Who is an evangelical? What's the size of, of the evangelical community? Um, according and, and uh, you know we're talking about. Age, race, ethnicity, beliefs—it's like that's why I said I think evangelicals are such a great topic because it's such a huge, it's such a huge kind of messy group in a way. Um, If we can't manage this issue, we won't be able to talk about religion or write about it really at all. Um, According to Pew, of evangelical of people who describe themselves as evangelical Protestants, 76% are white, 6% black, 2% Asian, 11% Latino. So the question is. when we were constantly writing about evangelicals and really writing about white evangelicals, were we ignoring that other quarter, or were you talking about missing lots of people who are, you know, qualified as historically black, um, historically black Protestant, um, the historically black Protestant community? Um, in one of my stories, I, I quoted David Kinneman, who runs the, the Christian research firm Barna, as saying. Uh, this is from the story He said he believes loose definitions of evangelical have ballooned the group size from more a more accurate what he said seven to eleven percent of the u s population to a quarter, which is a huge difference um, and then a fourth theme um, is just. Uh, just the new uh, needing a new language around religion and um, and denominations. I've, I'm here this year on a Neiman Fellowship, so I've been thinking some my deep thoughts. And one of the things I've been thinking about is just just this language issue and trying to find another way to describe denominations. Um, I'm blanking on the name for a second of the guy who wrote this amazing book at the Post. Uh, anyway, he, he was one of my colleagues who retired, but he wrote a book called uh, The Tribes, basically of exurbia, like describing America in, um, in different language that's actually more real. Uh, so that, I think that, that's one of, the, one of the big lessons of, of this coverage is that it was not specific and not um, uh, nuanced enough. So I'm a couple of minutes extra, but I'll pass it on. Thank you.
2: i going to try to not
1: fall, fall. into the, into the soul. soul.
3: Sorry, I created this one. There <laughs> we go. Okay. Thank you.
2: Well, I will um, confess that I am one of the editors that people keep talking about. In my role, <laughs> In my role at NPR as Western Bureau Chief, you actually never hear me on the air. I am an editor who edits all of the material that comes from Colorado West. And as of earlier this year, I'm also the senior editor for religion and the senior editor for LGBT issues. So I have a lot of portfolios um, going on at once. But um, I've actually found that most of the best religion reporting um, comes when we send either our correspondent, Tom Jelton, out of DC or when it emerges from our, reporter, our national desk reporters who are outside of the, uh, the Washington, New York, LA area, even though I live in Los Angeles myself. I spend an unseemly amount of time in the upper Midwest, though, so I I feel like I have some some understanding of the heartland. Um, I I framed uh, my my remarks around some of the questions that were in the packet uh, that came to us. So one of the questions was, where does religion become part of the story? And I think that when you say um, Trump and evangelicals, you imagine that that means that, oh, this is clearly already framed as a story about religion. But... um, I imagined myself not knowing what the word evangelical meant, but just thinking, not knowing that it was a religious word, but that uh, when I read the core readings and some of the, uh, the supplementary readings, I thought, do I actually hear anything about the, the, the religious beliefs that, that are um, bolstering these people's understanding of themselves? And I thought, actually, I'm not seeing much of that in these stories. Um, and not just in our core readings and not just in the supplementary readings, but in a lot of coverage that I, that I paid attention to, um, I wasn't sure that evangelical was a religious word because what it meant, according to the stories, was these are people who are uh, against abortion, probably white and conservative, and have concerns about LGBT issues, as in it's okay that they, that they exist, but I don't want to have to sell cakes to them or hire them. Um, and I don't see much about... <coughs> know What is it about them that distinguishes themselves from, say, Catholics or from uh, (coughs) mainline Protestants? Um, The interesting thing about my relationship to covering, when I was a reporter and now editing, uh, Evangelicals is that I grew up in a a very Lutheran family and with a very Catholic part of that Lutheran family. And so I didn't know much about Evangelicals until I encountered (coughs) them as a reporter myself because I had a very sort of mainline Protestant and where where certain kinds of mainline Protestants meet um, Catholic's upbringing. Um, Another one of the core questions was, uh, which religious actors or institutions are included and how does that choice um, shape the story? I think many of the stories that we read uh, for for this panel and a lot of the other coverage that I have listened to or seen or read myself in in the past year or so uh, relies very heavily on, re- on leaders within um, the evangelical movement. And that's where I think a lot of the reporters found this fracture happening. There were a few um, people like Russell Moore who were very loud talking about how he was uh, not a fan of Donald Trump. Um, but when we actually sent reporters, when I said to our religion correspondent, go to Tennessee, go to North Carolina, when I said to our reporters in the West, go to Colorado, go to Montana... Um, we were not seeing that same kind of fracture. So I wasn't really that surprised when 80, was it 81% of evangelicals? You know, I thought it would be, you know, 75%. So it wasn't that, that big of a difference because we spent a lot of time not just talking to the leaders. And if you only talk to the leaders, you frame the story as fracture because a couple of very loud people s- said there was a, there was a <coughs> rift. We never really found that on the ground. And in fact, only one of the stories that we read um, for, for the, the core readings had a person say, uh, an evangelical woman, who said, I wouldn't let my year seventh grader talk that way. I'm certainly not going to vote for a candidate who talks that way. That was actually the only thing that we read in, in the core readings that I thought, oh, this is actually where the fracture is, but it's a tiny, tiny group of people. Um, one thing that I was surprised by, I was hoping that some of these readings would, would engage religion in an innovative way, and that was another one of the questions. And I'm not seeing a lot of, um, and especially from national, national, especially in broadcasting, somewhat more in public radio because we have a network that is sort of based from the ground. Uh, but talking to people, not... Going in and labeling them evangelicals say like, I'm going to look for evangelicals it's actually talking to people in churches and in pews around town go to people go to a, a Trump rally and talk to people about what their religious beliefs are sort of start the conversation there rather than saying I'm going looking for evangelicals voting voting for Trump I think that would have been more innovative starting with who's already here rather than looking for for evangelicals um, I would have loved to see more attention to say um, evangelical <coughs> women in non-leadership roles who can articulate the reasons for not supporting Trump. I thought that that one woman in the reading was, was the only example of that that, that we saw. For instance, um, you know, his multiple marriages, his basic dishonesty, I wanted to hear people talking about specific religious commitments that they had as evangelicals that caused them to either dislike Trump or dismiss those you know fairly large problems um, and what would allow for them to dismiss them. What was the larger issue? Uh, what I saw in, in a lot of our coverage, in a lot of coverage elsewhere, was sort of a acceptance of, and, and then this gets back to my original notion of like if I didn't know what evangelicals were, maybe they aren't a religious group of people. Maybe they are a conservative group of white people who, who take on religious language to further the thing that they want, which is the end of abortion and um, a lack of uh, rights for LGBT people. <coughs> so that is, that is, I thought, a way that we could be more innovative in our, in our coverage. Um, how does religious literacy? Uh, how does a religious literacy approach to this story enrich our understanding of what's happening? I actually thought that there's been, you know, we sort of use the word evangelical, and then we never define it in a lot of the stories. I think it would have been very helpful, it, even if the people could, even if the people being interviewed couldn't clearly articulate what that meant to them as an evangelical, we could have used a nut graph in there somewhere to explain to people who have no clue about something like a personal relationship with Jesus, born again, something like that. There wasn't really any understanding of that described in the stories, and I actually wonder, if you push people to describe it, what will they say? I mean, we have an academic understanding of what evangelicals are. I'm not sure that evangelicals themselves have a lot of language to describe themselves to themselves. I mean, what is it about the Gospels that leads them to believe that not baking this cake is an important way of living in the world? What is it about um, their understanding of grace that says that they should, uh, you know, oppose abortion rights. I, I, those would be the questions that I would love to hear hear asked. But I come from a much more sort of theological interest in religion reporting, and I want people to ta- to articulate their theologies, not just articulate what they're doing in the world. I mean, we can describe <coughs> what they're doing. Journalists are very good at like watching people do something and then ask them, "What did you just do?" And then sort of write that into a story, but rather, what was your motivation for it? Where, what, what is the Bible story that leads you to act this way? I would be very interested in saying, you know, confronting, you know, as, as good journalists will, you know, people who seem to not be making much sense about what they're saying. What is it about this candidate who does not actually uphold the values that you say you uphold that still appeals to you? And I think that Lori was very smart in her comments <coughs> last night that it was also just an anti-Hillary as the Antichrist sort of sort of understanding that it doesn't matter how bad um, Trump perhaps is as, as King Cyrus is. It's just Hillary would be a lot worse. Um, one of the questions, and I, I, this was a little surprising of the, of the questions in the readings to me, which, which was what forms of violence is religion supporting or resisting in this case? And I see uh, religion resisting violence in two ways in these pieces, uh, on Trump and evangelicals. Um, but resisting it in very, very thin ways. Um, I think there is some resistance to the violence in the notion that abortion should be illegal. I would like to hear them talking more about what that means. Um, However, I think there's a total lack of understanding among the occasions when evangelicals talk about this in the ways that there is violence done against women seeking abortions when abortions are not legal, uh, often women in very desperate situations. The stories suggest that abortion is a given bad rather than a really fraught, complex reality in many people's lives. Um, The one example that I see as a clear resistance of violence is when, but really only in one of the stories we read, a woman says she can't vote for Trump, as I've said before, because she wouldn't allow her seventh grade son (coughs) to use that locker room language. Um, I guess very few evangelicals actually felt that way, felt that way in the end. So I wonder if maybe we spent, if, if we would have spent more time talking to people like that woman, we would have um, distorted reality by overcovering over people in uh, with that point of view. And I don't see religion as resisting violence in many of these stories because there's actually no attention given uh, to the violence perpetrated <coughs> against queer people or Muslims or women or Mexicans or the poor or the disabled that came out of the Trump campaign. And there was no question, um, no sort of uh, framing of in, in the story about how we have a, a fairly um, violent framing of the world from Donald Trump, and how uh, people of faith might might counter that uh, that violence. And I'll. I'll And I have much more to say about uh, the the craft of journalism, but I hope that comes up in the the questions. But I'll I'll end by uh, talking about uh, this wonderful question that nobody ever asks in in newsrooms, at least I don't think anybody's ever asked this in a newsroom before. How does the theological (coughs) anthropology play into the positions at stake and the conflicts between them? I would love to ask somebody that sometime in an interview. (laughs) Um, I love a good question about whether people are good or bad or both at the same time. Frankly, I think that more attention needs to be paid to this question. Uh, You know, um, Is your personal relationship with Jesus being born again, uh, how does that change the way that you view yourself, but how does it also view the way that you view other people, people who have perhaps not been born again, or people who are still people (coughs) of faith, perhaps mainline Protestants, perhaps Catholics, perhaps Muslims, who just don't have that same understanding of, say, a need for something like redemption? What is the worldview that says you need to be born again? And how do you interact with a world that doesn't believe you need to be born again? And does anything that you believe or say or do after you've been born again um, uh, undo or matter in a greater, in a greater sense? Um, I ask these, fairly, uh, these, these questions because I honestly don't know. I, um, I have very little understanding from these stories of what these people actually think sin might be. Um, I, I think that they think that they're like little sins, and I, but I, I'm not entirely sure what they think about like our um, disposition toward God related to say, say original sin and the need for, for grace or forgiveness or reconciliation. Um, and, I, and that confuses me because I thought these were people who were very interested in, in holiness, in, in propriety, um, and have often launched attacks at people, uh, especially gay people or people in, um, you know, who perhaps steal in order to feed their families, as saying that they are the bad people. But here we have a candidate who, um, you know, did not represent their values still, um, and they were still willing willing to vote for him. So the worldview seems to emerge um, that is that some people are good and some people are bad, but will still like bad people um, if they adhere to those. Very, that very small list of conservative things that I, that, that I listed before, something like abortion, same-sex marriage, maybe, maybe a few other things. Um, I would be more interested in a worldview, um, and I think that this is what religion reporters can actually bring to the coverage, that um, both asks the people who are saying things like that and the people who are opposing them um, <coughs> to complexify their understanding of... of Human nature to to think about the fact that we are all both very that we're all very complicated that we are good people in very I'm sorry this is my very Lutheran language coming through that we're both you know justified we're sinners and saints at the same time that you're you know you you exist with this multiple subjectivity and then we could actually have a really interesting conversation about oh now I do understand how you might have all of these uh, beliefs about the world and what is right and good in the world but still vote for someone who you don't like because you have a different kind of understanding of how a person exists in the world as, as um, outwardly perhaps uh, bad, but perhaps inwardly good. So hopefully those will uh, have some questions.
4: So I, I, I won't take too much time. And those of you who are familiar with the black church tradition, that means I'm going to take a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I find myself in these interesting kinds of in, interesting environments. You know, I'm the president of the American Academy of Religion. I find myself on Morning Joe. I write for Time Magazine. I teach at Princeton. It's, it can be confusing at times. Uh, but I want to thank you for inviting me to participate in this important conversation. Um, I, hopefully I have something to say that will just spark uh, some, some uh, debate. Uh, It is certainly the case that white evangelicals, and I suspect some evangelicals of color, played a central role in the election of Donald Trump. Now, what do we know? We know from the exit poll data that about 81% of white evangelicals voted for him, 60% of white Catholics voted for him, and even a majority of Mormons, 61% of Mormons, voted for him. Now, this came as a surprise to many people in the media, including myself, uh, throughout the primary and the general election, there was a general, there was a kind of consensus that the so-called value voter, and here I'm going to echo some of the things that were said earlier. Uh, the so-called value voter found the character questions surrounding Donald Trump insurmountable. <coughs> uh, his personal flaws definitely disqualified him, at least for some, from consideration. Uh, this was certainly true during the controversy with the cons the Gold Star family, and the audio video footage with Trump's horrific comments about his behavior uh, with regards to women. And we see the early coverage, at least in the core readings right, uh, of the case study, right, reflecting this assumption. Right? Now post-election, we know otherwise. Uh, um, and we might even call this the Trump effect, something akin to the Bradley effect with a slight variation. Of course, the Bradley effect involved discrepancies between voter opinion polls and election outcomes where you have a white candidate and a non-white candidate running against each other. And here, white voters dissemble when asked about who they support for fear that in stating their true preferences, uh, they might be seen as holding racist views, that they have racist motivations for why they're voting for who they're voting for. And this has been called uh, in the sociological literature, in the political science literature, something akin to kind of social desirability bias, right? The worst thing you can be called in the United States is a racist. It's like George W. Bush saying the lowest moment in his his administration is when Kanye West said George W. Bush doesn't like white black people, right? Hates black people. Right? That's the lowest moment. Uh, so um, really, well, in this case, we didn't have a person of. <laughs> In this case, we didn't have a person of color running for office. Instead, we had someone who embraced views that were widely considered racist, from building a wall to his comments about the Indiana judge to the appointment of Steve Bannon, to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we had a number of white evangelicals behaving like Rose Aller in the reading. Remember her? Right, who kept their support of Donald Trump secret. Right? So by not expressing their commitments early on, by not revealing what they actually, you know, and I remember sitting around the table in the morning show where folks said, oh, is, this, is the silent Trump voter out there? And they just kept, no, 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 it's not, right? Um, obviously, it complicates how we might read their motivation for supporting Trump, right, by not revealing them, right, uh, and understanding the contradictions of commitments that we all hold. Um, and, and to my mind, it's not simply racial, although it is definitely so. And here I agree with Robert Jones that the evangelical support reflects a convergence, in my view, of economic insecurity, anxiety over demographic shifts, and in some ways a moral panic over the changing nature of the culture of the United States. And I think all of, a lot of this is rooted in the crisis of whiteness. Right? All right. Um, this was the first election in which white Christians were clearly a demographic minority, according to the PRI data. 43% today, down from 54% in 2008. Six out of 10 Americans, you know, um, in 2008, only 40% of the country supported same-sex marriage. Today, it's legal in all 50 states, and six out of 10 Americans support it. Kind of cultural shift. Um, I think the writing is on the wall. Uh, white evangelical, although Laurie doesn't agree with this, at least she suggested she did white evangelical Protestants comprised 22% of the population in 1988 and still commanded 21% of the population in 2008, but today only 17% of Americans claim the moniker. All right. I think the data is showing, and this is, I'm, I'm kind of echoing here, the PRI data. Young adults ages 18 to 29 are less than half as likely to be white Christians as seniors age 65 and older. Only 3 in 10 young white adults are Christian today, at least <coughs> we can challenge this data. In some ways, what we might see here is the, 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 like the general election, let me say, in some ways, like the ge- election in general, this may be white Christian America's last gasp. Uh, In in my other writing, I think part of the election of Donald Trump reflects um, that this might very well be white America's last gas. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Jimmy Baldwin wrote in 1961 in The Dangerous Road before Martin Luther King uh, that white America is dead. The question is how long and how expensive the funeral will be. (laughs) second brief point I want to make uh, involves our use of language. Uh, noticed in the, in the circulated articles that the early reporting and even, in some ways, the way in which we were talking earlier, used the description of evangelical, and it's almost like an undifferentiated grouping, uh, that you know, uh, in which people hold similar religious and political commitments. <coughs> but by the end of the election cycle, the adjective white was added. All right, so in the early part of the reading, it's just evangelical. Uh, In the post-election reading, it's white evangelical. I think this was a significant development and was a result of a concerted effort among some evangelicals to force the media to treat them with a little bit more nuance. Think about Jim Wallace and Sojourners and Op-Ed and USA Today trying to insist that there were... Uh, uh, tens of millions of Americans, quote, who fit the theological definition of evangelical, but who do not support such a narrow definition of moral issues and clearly do not support Trump or his bigotry, end quote. So I find it interesting that the problem has been repeated (coughs) in the very literature that props our discussion. Uh, Might we think of the word evangelical and its function, just as we did with the Trump effect, as a variant of a dog whistle? So I said the Trump effect is a variant of the Bradley effect. Our use of evangelical can be read as a variant of a dog whistle. It isn't a racist dog whistle, certainly, but it works in such a way that calls out a particular group. And here I'm thinking about my colleague Imani Perry, who helped me think about this. That the the word calls out a particular grouping of white people for special attention and orients the listener accordingly. So when we use evangelical in our writing, it orients the reader or the listener in a particular sort of way, much like working class, much like middle America, right? as if black people and brown people don't live in middle America, as if black people and brown people aren't working class. Right? So what is the adjective white doing when it describes the noun? I like to talk about that a little bit more. <laughs> wow.
5: The problem with being what the tenth speaker in a line of very smart people is that many of the things that you want to say have have been said. So. Um, I'm, I'm morphing my content a little bit. Uh, I also want to thank uh, very much Bruce McEver for for funding this, Diane Moore and Stephen Prothro for uh, instigating it, and for any of the good work that comes from it. Um, first, a little bit of perspective uh, perspective that shapes the view uh, I have on this topic. Uh, I was born, raised, lived, uh, and earned all four of my college degrees in the Midwest. Uh, For the past 10 years, I've made my home and partially raised my three children in the state of Missouri, a place I hadn't visited until I went to interview for a job, by the way. (laughs) Um, And this makes me very sensitive to these conversations that too often take place among East and West Coast elites. And um, this sense of place and culture very much shapes my outlook on, on these matters. So secondly, I'd like to just tell a story. Um, uh, last month, as the finality of Donald Trump's win has, had just been broadcast, I was uh, in Cape Town, South Africa. And I was standing in front of 24 journalists from sub-Sahara Africa. We were training these journalists on how to write about religion and LGBTQI issues. These journalists were from the Gambia, Uganda, Zimbabwe, Senegal, Nigeria, Zambia, Botswana, Kenya, Namibia, Ghana, 15 countries in all. They worked for a variety of international, regional, and specialty media outlets. I was one of only three white people in the room. I was from the West, and the training was funded with Western NGO money. As I stood before them, ready to extol the principles of the excellence uh, principles of excellence in religion, journalism, and having just read the headlines that Donald Trump had won, I suffered a meltdown of what I'll call PTSD, President Trump Stress Disorder. <laughs> um, I just burst into tears. I just fell apart, sobbing and blithering on about being a privileged individual who nonetheless believed in all her heart in the virtues of democracy and, and the liberal democratic ideas that had powered US politics, the arc of justice. I mean, I just threw it all in. and. <laughs> I, I yeah, I just looked ridiculous. Finally one of the trainees came up and just gave me a big hug, which which allowed me to go go forward with my my training. but, you know, in, in retrospect, I just, uh, the ludicrousness of this really hit me because I was in a room full of journalists, some of whom had been exiled from their countries because of their work. Many had lived in countries rife with corruption, where the media are tools of the government, where their families have been decimated by AIDS or drought or ethnic violence. And we were holding a training in a country where apartheid was abolished a mere 25 years ago. So I mentioned this most embarrassing moment to give perspective (coughs) to the difficult, though noble, task at hand. As Stephen Prothero mentioned yesterday, the world is full of dangerous places for journalists and those seeking religious freedom. More than three-fourths of the world's population lives in places where freedom of religion and invariably speech is restricted. We live in a world in which an atheist blogger in Bangladesh Uh, could be and in fact has been hacked to death, more than one, as we seek remedies to fake news, more accurately termed propaganda, I think, we also need to remember the dangers of imposing controls on speech we hate. So back to the case study. I want to mainly riff off some of the points that Steve, uh, Lori, Steve made t- yesterday and Diane uh, today in terms of tackling the problem of religious literacy and journalism, focusing mostly on uh, journalism. I want to expand upon the point that Lori made about religious diversity in newsrooms. This is a challenge to achieve, for sure. But one of the biggest problems is the high level of secularity within newsrooms, which makes editors and reporters alike tone-deaf to issues of faith and values. The best data we have on this suggests that the level of secularity in the newsrooms is at least double that of the general population, or nearly four in 10. In addition, among journalists who claim some faith tradition, only about 5% self-identify as evangelical. And so unlike the Pew Research Center's work, though, there's no distinction between black or white evangelicals uh, there. Mainline Protestants, Roman Catholics, and Jews are all represented in newsrooms at higher percentages than the general population. And unfortunately, the surveys do not have a large enough sample (coughs) to give us meaningful data on the number of Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, Sikhs, and uh, other faiths to measure. But we know that these numbers are small. I also wanna talk about the economic challenges to religion news. Um, I think that talking about for-profit, talking about legacy mainstream media, talking about non that that's a binary way of looking at the media. Uh, I think if you look at the Washington Post, for instance, which is very much owned uh, as a for-profit company, uh, that there are some really, really exciting experiments that are going on there. Uh, I think it's problematic to seed religion news to specialty online-only media. Their audiences are not big enough, their content is too long. Um, and I also just want to remem- remind you that um, that we're in sort of this Wild West era. Just watch Westworld and you will get it, okay? That's what the media world is, is like. Um, There is no one economic (coughs) model of religion news. I speak as somebody who's been having to raise about $2 million or more a year um, since we acquired Religion News Service in 2011, and a job from which I've happily retired. Um, Religion news and interest uh, in it spikes, and there have been millions of dollars, tens of thousands of hours spent in trying to improve it and expand it. When the editor of the Dallas Morning News can't get Hobby Lobby to buy an ad in its award-winning religion section, which had a 50% Saturday readership um, at its peak when it was this beautiful six to eight page glorious award-winning thing, um, you have a problem. You have a problem. Uh, All media are still experimenting. There are not enough resources, not enough money uh, in the world to bring religious literacy to all journalists and all the journalists who need it. Um, however, again, as Lori said, having people in newsrooms, having uh, scholars in the region that um, can be identified and serve to flag um, gross inaccuracies is, is really vital. I also want to highlight Steve's point about the need for scholars of religion, politicians, NGOs, and other players in this arena to make sure that journalists are included (coughs) in the room in collaborative conversations addressing core problems around the public's lack of religious knowledge. Too often this has been media are bad they're stupid. They do this. They do that, and it doesn't go any further than that. And it's it's been it it has not been helpful. I don't I think. Um, I am starting to see some of these collaborative conversations going on at projects at AAR, uh, in efforts to counter violent extremism at companies like Google and places like the U.S. State Department. Um, in, uh, For instance, there's an um, US-Indo uh, Council on Religious and Pluralism, and they have experts in religion um, both from the US and from Indonesia, and that's just an example. But these examples are rare and they're insufficient. I think what this gets at is the notion of uh, journalism as a professional, <coughs> as professional experts. It doesn't matter what their venue is, what their outlet is, what the history of that outlet is, but they are experts. And uh, I don't think that replacing journalists with scholars works. The tenure system, uh, you know, the values in academia, time, It doesn't support that sort of work. It's not rewarded in significant enough a way, way, except in rare occasions. Um, I do think that there are academics who are morphing into this with um, great success. You're an example. Uh, But I think for the most part they are speaking to elites uh, and that the problem of religious literacy is too big, too broad. Related to this point, as I think I already mentioned, that um, is case study analysis itself. There are ample instances of media failures. The sausage that is news journalism is messy in the making. But it's important for everyone to highlight and share and show examples of high caliber journalism about religion because it does exist. Um, And some of the people who write about that and produce it daily are here. Um, are in this room, but there are many other people out there who, uh, who do it. Um, there are examples uh, in these case studies that do include context, they include history, they include empathy, and, and all of these things. We know the ingredients of this sausage. Um, at no time in our history have we had access to so much content about religion, so many resources to create quality content. But there's a cacophony of content, and what we need are scholars, activists, and others who can lift what's good up from the swamp of information cluttering our feeds and inboxes. We need to share where we get it right and serve as models to do better, uh, to better inform. These sorts of efforts have, to date, been insufficient and lacking. As has been noted, readers um, tend to trust outlets that validate their own backgrounds. It's a huge problem. And what scholars and others can do is to highlight and bring to the fore some of this other content that reaches beyond uh, beyond some of the typical narratives and storylines. I also just want to mention a couple (coughs) of other uh, brief things that I think are lacking out there that can be helpful. First of all, there's a huge, huge need for more research on religious media, uh, scholarships that looks at those messages and how they do uh, how they do have effectiveness within uh, religious discourse. It's hard to do. There's a reason that more people do content studies and other analyses of the New York Times than any other media outlet is because it's easy to find <coughs> in every single newspa- uh library in our in our country. Um, It's a lot harder to do uh, the study and the hard work of acquiring and looking closely at religious media. Uh, But if you have um, ever judged the Evangelical Press Association's contest or um, other similar association contests, you realize that there is a huge volume of this content, and there is little to. I mean just minuscule amount of scholarship about it, useful scholarship. Uh, I also want to point to this problem of conflict narratives and, and a lot of that is related to uh, the economics of journalism at present and in our current transitional moment, which I think is a, which I hope is a low point. Um, um, I do think we're starting to see some answers to the economic support of news in general and we're starting to sort our way. But uh, conflict narratives, of course, do remain the dominant uh, content that gets created today in uh, many newsrooms. And one of the issues that has affected religion news particularly is the um, really the decline of religion sections. Now, love them or hate them, uh, everybody who ever had to work with one (coughs) has a viewpoint. Uh, But the reality was that those religion sections served Uh, to counter conflict narratives, that was one of the complaints. They were fluff, they were too soft. Um, But nonetheless, um, they were a place to show religious diversity, to show nuance, to uh, have the space to be able to get into the uh, complexities of uh, faith and values, and those sections, there has not been a successful way to recreate those sections online, um, for the most part, I would say. I, I think we haven't found that, that solution yet, um, except in some very small, maybe, interfaith um, media outlets. Uh, I also just finally want to mention two more things. One is I want to talk about the chilling effect of um, abuse of media professionals. So for instance, um, one friend who is Muslim who wrote a commentary, uh, her uh, trolls found her child's (coughs) picture, her child was under 10, um, took the picture, put the word terrorist across it and distributed it all over Twitter. More recently, there was a story of an editor, Jewish editor, whose uh, child's picture was shown inside a furnace or an oven, um, with Donald Trump, uh, you know, smiling and getting ready to push the, I don't know, push something, a lever or something. Um, the level there has been a measurable increase in the vitriol that has been aimed at journalists. <coughs> Uh, by people affiliated with the Trump campaign. Um, we know this because of the volume and uh, when it started, but also because of uh, their avatars and expressed support for Trump. Uh, it's measurable, it's uh, factual, and um, it is dangerous. As we've seen in terms of, of, of what happened with um, the issue with the pizzeria in Washington D.C., I mean, I'm waiting for that story when somebody has burst into a newsroom. <coughs> well, and it's—I mean, it's already happened in uh, Charlie Hebdo, but uh, I'm waiting for that uh, unfortunate event to happen in the United States. Uh, and the potential for this to have a chilling effect is real, I think, and. Um, Uh, And so uh, think of your journalists as brave souls, because they're out there really working hard in an environment that is uh, atrocious. And it wasn't an environment that I had to deal with in, in the 80s. Um, Finally, uh, I want to just raise up one more resource that as I do more training internationally I realize what a jewel it is and how lucky we are to have the Pew Research Center. Uh, Also data from PRRI, but I think Pew still puts out the most useful data on religion. Uh, That makes the United States um, unique in, in many parts, in many ways. Uh, and um, we haven't had uh, the data regarding uh, this particular election, the full data yet. They've kind of released a portion of it, but um, we're waiting for that full analysis. But I just want to mention the importance of this kind of data for people who do write about religion because uh, regardless of what some people think, we do need facts and we do need data. Finally, I want to just end with uh, getting back to these uh, trainers uh, in uh, Cape Town and uh, one of my non-blathering moments. Uh, I asked them, is homosexuality, if a, if a pastor says to you homosexuality is a sin, is that a fact or is that a belief? And there was a long pause. Uh, it was very quiet for a while. And then one of the journalists said, It's a fact, because it's in the Bible. So uh, we certainly, of course, had to address the issue of inconsistencies (coughs) in translations and the use of sacred scriptures to support all sorts of different uh, things, such as slavery, and, and so on and so forth. But I say that just as the tiniest of examples of how difficult this problem is. Um, particularly with some of the non elites um, who are typically not in the room with the rest of us. So, thank you.
6: Hi. Uh, coming at this point, after so many wonderful speakers uh, here on the panels and, and, and the comments from, uh, from, from out there, uh, it's tempting just to sort of Make a collage of interesting points. Like that was a good thing that that person said, right? <laughs> um, but uh, instead, I'm just gonna just uh, before I get into what I wanted to say, pick up on two things um, uh, that some of my fellow panelists said. And 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 one, uh, a point that Eddie raised in, in the last panel about uh, the problem of ideological different differentiation. Um, which to me is is one of the key and most interesting. It's not a problem. This is what <coughs> makes the work worth doing. This is why you do it. Um, and um, But it also becomes, at, at times, I think we can look at it as, oh, it's important to recognize the different sorts of things. Um, I think in the time, in the age of Trump, and I should say I'm speaking not from a newsroom, um, but as a sort of a magazine journalist who has lots more luxury to... Um, I make no pretense of uh, value neutral. Um, I think it's absolutely essential that we engage with that ideological differentiation uh, both in movements like Black Lives Matter and but also in terms of what I think is the big story which is the convergence of so many different rightist movements uh, in trumpism uh, and uh, the great risk is sort of seeing it as as one big blob when in fact it's it's an alliance of people we never thought would work together. Um, And and there they are. Um, And that's why, actually, I don't particularly value the term evangelical. Uh, I don't think it tells us a whole lot about Christian conservatism. Even that term is a little vague. Um, I've certainly been in plenty of evangelical churches and met people who were participants in that evangelical churches who didn't call themselves evangelical because they didn't really know what what it meant. Just as journalists have that problem, um, uh, regular people do as well. Um, and the other thing I want to pick up is, is what Jason w- was talking about, and as one of the editors, who is, is, is not like the bad editors, um, w- was sending out people to do more reception stories. What does this feel like? Not what, to, what You hear what the leaders are saying, what does this feel like to you? So I think I want to get to that point. Um, but I'm mostly going to talk about transmission. Uh, even so, because I'm not at that point yet, um, although I would say that transmission and reception, of course, are like ideological differentiation convergence. You can't tell the story of one without the other. Um, yesterday... Laurie made this great point um, about why so many of us were too certain that Trump couldn't win, um, about how we trusted the data nerds, the Nate Silvers, and the Upshots, and all the other pollsters. I think, Steve, you sent me a very reassuring email at one point, uh, citing a Princeton scholar who said it was absolutely certain. Um, And I was really reassured by that for a while. I said, thanks, Steve. Um, You're welcome. You're welcome. we journalists, Laurie noted, we deal in stories. Um, we draw from data, but we are telling stories. Um, uh, well, but we trusted the data because data trumps narrative. And a side note, someone's got to replace the word Trump in the English language, so <laughs> I don't have to keep using it. Um, but data trumps narrative. Um, well. I was, I get to, to, you know, like the broken clock that's right every now and then. Uh, I was an outlier from uh, uh, about August of 2015, right up to the election, in that I trusted the stories that I was hearing more than I trusted the data. This was not because I had a really well-developed critique of data and shortcomings. It's because I'm not very good at math, and so I just stick with stories that I like, stories. I'm a sucker for stories. And that's why I thought Trump had a chance, because he was telling good stories good, terrible stories. He told terrible stories very well um, and he believes in stories. He thinks that narrative trumps data. He could make his case on immigration uh, based on numbers, real numbers or cooked numbers. It did not would not matter very much or he could, he could, as he did so often on the campaign trail, tell the story of the snake. Did anyone hear him tell the snake? Um, the Snake, um, it's the lyrics of an old Al Wilson song. And when he tells it, he takes a, a piece of paper out of his pocket and he unfolds it and he says, do you wanna hear it? Do you wanna hear it? And you have to respond. You have to say yes. Um, you have to become part of this storytelling. Um, then he reads the lyrics. Um, he doesn't sing, but he sort of speaks in tongues in the sense that he does voices. He does voices. He does the voice of the wounded snake, who sounds sort of like a snake, um, sort of like Trump. Um, and then the tender woman of the lyrics, who, who cradles this wounded snake to her bosom, only to be bitten. And then Trump, as a serpent, hisses, oh, shut up, silly woman, said the reptile with a grin. You knew damn well I was a snake before you took me in. And when you go to a Trump rally, and you don't stay in the press pen, and you just mingle around people, you experience people nodding their heads to a story well told, a point irrefutably made. There is all you need to know about immigration, right there in that song. Um, so it's a terrible story, because he tells it well within that, that, that worldview. And because he knows he can't sell it straight. It's ridiculous. He's, he's doing voices on stage, so he doesn't try to sell it straight. He sells it crooked, and the crookedness of his tale becomes not a defect, but an amenity, a special thing that you can get campiness as proof mm-hmm. of his sincerity. Mm-hmm. And this makes the absurd story serious. It makes it real. It's what I think of as the fake news wink. And when we look at fake news and say, how can anybody believe that? It's important to remember how uh, parables and fake news are consumed. You believe it, and you don't at the same time. And it can become more powerful and stronger because of that. Now. Uh, so I want to tell a, a scarier story. And I'm going to quote from the piece that Lloyd quoted yesterday. I'm going to quote Trump um, telling it. Uh, this is a story called The Bullet. Um, uh, it begins uh, with a horse. There's a general. The year is 1919. The place is the Philippines, uh, where Trump has really found a, um, a fellow traveler in Duterte, who he's sort of now expressing adma- imagine, uh, uh, admiration for. The general is uh, John T. Pershing, blackjack. Um, Trump doesn't name the war because it's not the point. It doesn't matter. There's a tremendous terror problem, he says. That's what you need to know. You're set up. Oh, and the terrorists are Muslims. You need to know that. Here's how he tells it. And I'm going to read it um, with the stage directions that I was allowed to put in it, because that's getting gesturing toward the reception. Uh, they catch 50 terrorists. Today we read them. I'm not going to read it like Trump. Uh, today we read them <laughs> their rights, take care of them. Ba-ba. And the audience boos on cue. We feed them the best food, make sure they have television, we give them areas to pray. It's a wonderful thing. We're wonderful people. We're wonderful, stupid, stupid people. And the audience laughs. So General Pershing, tough, tough guy, 50 terrorists, what happens is he lines them up to be shot. The Guy near me just shouted, yeah! His story was, was, was being realized. Lines people up to be shot. And as you know, swine, pig, all of that is a big problem for them, big problem. He took two pigs, then chopped them open. Trump chops his hand. And I haven't seen nearly enough journalism. We all talked about how small his hands, we weren't paying attention to what his hands were doing. Except for the occasional, like, it's sort of like Mussolini. Yeah, how is it like Mussolini? Pay attention to the hands. He took the bullets that were were going to go and shoot these men. And he holds up an imaginary bullet. Took the bullets, the 50 bullets, dropped them in the pigs, swished them around. He swishes. So there's blood all over those, those bullets. And at this point, the crowd is cheering. Uh, had his men, instructed his men, and his voice rising, to put the bullets into the rifles, <coughs> thumps the lectern. They pull it to the rifles. Uh, they put the bullets in the rifles, and, he, and they shot. Um, and there's a lot of cheering now. 49 men. And then he tells the story again. Same story. Puts the imaginary bullet into an imaginary rifle. He does it. He mimes it. And shoots his imaginary uh, 49 Muslims. Boom, boom, boom. That's horrific storytelling. That's storytelling. um, And that's transmission. And I'm trying to get uh, at the reception that's going on there. Now, I hope there's some historians here who are saying, but that never happened. Of course it didn't. Um, But that's not the point. Um, It's worth remembering. Some will disagree with me, but Moses didn't really part the Red Sea either. And yet the story still works for its audience. Now, I just want to uh, close up by turning to some, some, some stories told that were part of Trump's um, campaign. And I should say, by the way, I, I'm framing this as religious language. There wasn't nearly enough attention paid to Trump's explicitly religious language, which goes all the way back through his career. And if you haven't read uh, Daniel Burke's piece on Trump and Norman Vincent Peale, I really recommend it. It's, Peale is absolutely formative to him. Um, and he tells peel-like stories, except he makes them dark. Um, so these uh, uh, quickly—just three one-liners. Uh, preacher in Ohio, red-hot local pulpit pounder, works a crowd up into a fury. Denunciations of the range of satanic forces that had fallen to the U.S., including child trafficking, which seems relevant in light of the the, the Washington the Comet Pizza story. Um, And then concludes by calling on us that uh, to put our minds aside, I'm quoting, put our minds aside when we vote, that we might cast heart ballots and not ones bound by reason. And the crowd cheered. And afterwards, I talked to these people. I met a few evangelicals. I met a lot more people who never go to church. And boy, did they appreciate having a pastor there. They thought that was really great. There's other pastors, like Pastor Mark Burns, uh, a black prosperity gospel from South Carolina traveled with Trump, frequently opened for him. There's always a pastor opening for him. Here's a quote from uh, Burns. It's horrible, horrible how they're trying their best to make sure you and I focus on race and our color and not the only true color that matters. There is no black person, he continues, no white person, no yellow, no red. There is only green people. And he pauses. He says, green is the color of money. And again, the crowd cheers. And their desire for some kind of economic miracle is sanctified, and it's a mostly white crowd. And look, they can't be racist because it's a black pastor up there who told it to them. Um, and then last, there's figures like Lance Wellnow, who is a more prominent figure, uh, met with Trump twice, um, wrote a book called God's Chaos Candidate, which did pretty well, which is Trump. And he's very much in favor of it. He is maybe one of the sources of that King Cyrus story. and. Um, uh, uh, but he's also uh, um, uh, he also tells a story about learning to think of Trump as a Wolf King, and that we always think of, of going out to the sheep. But what about the poor wolves? They need ministry as well. And if you can minister to the wolves and you can make the Wolf King serve the great king, um, then you are really doing true evangelism. Then you are making uh, this guy work for you. So. Um, I will stop there. Um, I will, I'll note that uh, we talk about being counter-values. I think it's worth looking at ways in which Trump is not counter to the values of a lot of these people, not counter to the theology of the strength, the theology of the Wolf King, um, and, and we can maybe talk about, as Jason said, some of the craft of journalism and, and some ideas about how we can get to those stories uh, in, in the Q&A. Thanks. <laughs>
0: Uh, thank you all. Um, just one one thought I have before opening it up to everyone else, and that is uh, part of what I was hearing Jeff say and others say <coughs> is, uh, is that uh, part of the attraction of Trump to evangelicals was um, that in order to see it, you need to move away from the doctrinal questions to the storytelling questions. And if you think of... You know what is the fundamental Christian story? At least one version of it is: uh, there was Eden, uh, things went bad, and a savior will make it great again. Right? <coughs> I mean, that's a pretty basic Christian story that a lot of Christians know, and uh, that's Trump's story. Um, so, so there's a level there's a level of storytelling that I think is really important that Jeff is uh, calling us attention to our attention to, and I want to just say. Something about that, in terms of this, is something that religious studies scholars and journalists also share, right? I mean, journalists we've heard many times today are, t- are storytellers. Um, uh, religions tell stories too. That that's the source of their power, right? That's how they they start before we even have have books. And the way they they compete and the way they succeed is by uh, telling stories. Well, sometimes hor- horrific stories about apocalypse, and sometimes you know lovely stories about people. Um, taking care of themselves, and this is one of the tensions, I, I think, as well in, in the newsroom. I uh, <coughs> used to write for the CNN belief blog a lot before Dan. Uh, before Dan was there, there was another Dan there, Dan Gilgoff, and I remember proposing a story, um, and it was uh, the Tea Party is a religious party. That, that that was the piece. It was it wasn't even a story. It was an opinion piece, and uh, nobody nobody had uh, had written about this uh, before. And, th- of course, it was a counter story. The story was the Tea Party was a party about economics and about uh, states' rights and about these sorts of things. It had nothing <coughs> to do with religion. And I wrote this up, and Dan, my editor, really liked it. And he, he passed it up to his editor, who, who hated it, because it was false. Um, and that was the, just the claim, like, this is, this is a false story. We know the story, and the Tea Party is a secular movement, just like we may know that Black Lives Matter is a secular movement. And it actually went up to the lawyers um, at CNN. And the lawyers um, came down and said, no, you can't do that. And I asked Dan, um, why? And the lawyers said the same, th- not, not you, Dan, the other Dan, <laughs> who fought for, the, for this story for me. Um, and they said, well, because it's false. And then uh, I think it was ten days later. Someone named Jeff Charlotte wrote an article called <laughs> "The Tea Party is a Religious Party." <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I don't remember. Yeah, no, you weren't. I mean, you weren't ripping me off because we didn't talk about it. But um, but this is an example about you know um, my friend Dave Chappelle, who wrote a beautiful uh, a beautiful book about uh, the Civil Rights Movement, uh, "Stone of Hope," and and the role of religion in the Civil, civil Rights Movement, um, has uh, said recently that you know to to replace a simple story (coughs) that's out there, whether it's about Muslims or whether it's about uh, evangelicals, whatever, you you can't really replace it with a complicated story in the journalism business. You have to replace it with another equally simple story. And I think that's one of the interesting tensions here that we as academics want all these stories to be complicated, but complicated stories don't sell. I mean, the Democratic Party told more complicated stories than Trump did in this election, and I think there there is a way that we we gravitated toward these simple ones. So I think that's another challenge for uh, religion journalists: is, is yes, if Jeff has you know however many thousand words he has to write a story, he can make things more complicated. But if you have seven hundred words in an op-ed, or you have nine hundred words in a in a reported story, um, that's a little a little trickier, and it becomes easier to just go in the in those lines that people you know, keep walking in and tell a story inside those lines rather than um, outside them. But with that said, I'd like to open it up for you all for uh, questions for, um, for one another.
1: I'd like to ask Jeff, I don't know if this is on. I'd like to ask Jeff uh, something. Um, so I, I heard you that you felt like the word is meaningless, but you've covered a lot of people who would call themselves evangelical. So, is that is your story? How do you link your wolf story to your your knowledge of of covering white evangelicals? Like, what is it? What is particular about um, a, about evangelicals that would be attracted in such large numbers to that? Is there anything particular about about uh, the fact that we're having a panel about evangelicals related I, to that story?
6: I, yeah, I think I think. Well, I should clarify. I, I don't think it's meaningless. I think it's not particularly useful to me in my journalism. That it's it's certainly. Right. meaningful, and especially to those who, as Diane says, if you call yourself something, that's important. Um, uh, but I think uh, the more the more interesting thing is the overlap with those who identify in that case, for instance, with the theology of strength. And there I'm thinking of the Comet Pizza story again. And there was an interview <coughs> with the shooter um, in the New York Times, which actually very quickly was denounced as normalizing him because we learned, you know, some sort of human features. We also learned that one of his favorite books is John Eldridge's uh, *Wild at Heart*, which is a sort of it is an evangelical book and a guide to masculinity. This guy is unclear on whether he's an evangelical, but he likes this book, in which talks about the idea of honoring God through violence, um, of you know, being like braveheart. You should actually get yourself a broadsword to help. Um, uh, and I think. I'm sort of more interested, in, and the Wolf King is going to speak to some people who describe themselves as evangelicals, and you, know, you go to a Trump rally, some people, very much, by the way, I think, like the situation of religious conservatism in Russia, where almost nobody goes to church, but they love Putin's talk about traditionalism. Um, and so I only mean that. I want to find... Those differentiages and convergences that are going to cross over into Catholicism and into unaffiliated and so on that are all, may, might all say, for an example, come from Eldridge's book, even by people who don't go to church.
0: I'm going to take the prerogative to open this up to questions because we just have uh, 15 minutes. So, is that okay with the panel? Do we have? Okay, uh, we'll do that. Great. Okay, yes. Okay, right here. Stuart.
7: Uh, thank you all. It's a wonderful panel. I, I, I wonder whether. And please tell us who you are, I am and then. Stuart Hoover from the University of Colorado Boulder, Center for Media, Religion, and Culture. Um, I'm wondering whether this larger, commodious definition of and, and loose definition of evangelicalism that we're all confronting with, and in part a way of typifying that that group or that discourse is a group of people who in a way <coughs> want to mark the culture in a certain kind of way that is that they what they see public culture as the point of a point of contestation and they're defined by a desire to have that marked in certain kinds of ways and whether that that might also have a precursor in the sense of that being the larger Protestant project. It was an implicit marking of the culture in the middle part of the 20th century. And in a way people are aware of the fact that, a, that religion should have some sort of a moral voice in that space. And so the connection then to religion is not actually through belief so much as <coughs> it's through a sense of wanting to kind of claim certain kinds of geographies and public space, and then contesting those and seeing things like uh, gay rights and, uh, and abortion rights and things as examples of the culture going bad. And we need to sort of focus on that as a project.
4: Yes. But you know, I'm, I'm really fascinated by you know, the way in which, I think you're right. I think, yes. Um, But, you know, there was this moment at the Democratic Convention when Reverend Barber got up and described himself as an evangelical, and he did it in very specific ways, inerrancy of the Bible, I mean, he just went down the line, and that wasn't the storyline, he tried to claim the the word uh, as a way of, 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 of giving an account Right, of, of, of what Moral Mondays was all about, what the Forward Together movement was all about, and that wasn't picked up. The only thing we could read him as was he's in the tradition of Dr. King, right? when in fact he was trying to do something in that space in a very particular sort of way. And it goes back to uh, the claim that I'm making is that evangelical, uh, in, in, our, in our conversation, all too often serves as another way of talking about white people without talking about white people. Right, um, and, and 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 that bothers the hell out of me, right? Especially in rooms like this when it's not when it's a lot of white people. So, I'm just saying that, right? Just want to just put it out there, right? And and so it becomes very difficult to begin to interrogate the work that's being done here, um, in this moment. And I'm just thinking about how we begin to think about that, Pastor Burns. How we begin to think about the fact that Kojic. Church of God in Christ sent a letter to the Clintons to the Clinton campaign, laying out all the problems that they had with her campaign right before uh, uh, before the election and it received that much coverage because again, the way in which black religious folks get read right it's through this kind of narrative of kind of progressive black church and the like, or these kind of huckster figures like burns and the like or these Odd, that odd guy who got outed who was his spokesman who you know, kind of tweaked his bio and stuff as opposed to really looking at what was going on on the ground. So This is just me trying to complicate the ways in which evangelical is involved, what it signifies in that moment.
0: And that term has history too, right? I mean, that was oh, fundamentalists didn't want to be called fundamentalists, so they said, hey, let's call ourselves evangelicals and then people will respect us. So there's a whole politics, an old politics behind it exactly. going back to early 20th century. Yes, over here, Bruce. Um. <coughs>
3: um, I find it really ironic that um, the press and the media are really the reason for the Trump victory. That um, I heard a panel of similar journalists in at the Aspen um, Ideas Festival, distinguished people talking. We were, they were—the question was why Trump was so far ahead in the. Uh, Primaries, and basically, they all admitted that, basically, something like two billion dollars of media time, whatever, mm-hmm. had, because he's a better story than the others. And you know, what's ironic? So ironic now is that now we're, we're we've built him up, and now we're tearing him down. And so, you know, what is what is it about our system? I think the more fundamental question is our system? What is it? What would you do to change our system um, so that we don't have these types of candidates uh, going forward? How do we change the fundamental system of our country that allows this kind of thing to happen?
2: Well, you know, as an editor, I think a lot of us thought that the more you let somebody say outlandish things and show, show the truth of themselves, the more the public would see the kind of person that he was <coughs> revealing himself to be. And it turned out that that's the person that people, that was, the, that was the person that was revealed that they actually wanted. And I think that within newsrooms, we all thought, this is, this is amazing. We've just got to put it on the air. And when we hear him say it, people will understand. And they did understand but they weren't the people that we were talking to in the newsrooms, that they weren't shocked by it, they were encouraged by it.
6: Yeah, and in that sense, I think I strongly disagree with the idea that the media made Trump. I think that's sticking with the assumption that people like us here in this room, that we make the decisions, and that the media, when we tell the story, that that's how people think. Um, You you know, at every Trump rally, there would be this instant um, uh, where he would talk to the press um, that would, you know, stay Faithfully, in its little metal pen at the back, and he'd say, Look at them. And it was a pro wrestling move, right? Mm-hmm. They were, you know, mm-hmm. they were, uh, what's the, the, the word for wrestling villains? Um, oh, wait, the, the, the face or whatever. Um, and everyone would turn around and boo and give them the finger. And, and then afterwards, some of these people would go up and say, Are you on you know, such and such? I love watching you. Um, uh, and those people were doing work on their own, they were not being guided by. The media and and so I think though that's you know that's the noise of demo- uh, 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 um, uh, demagoguery I was thinking of and because it reminded me of the sort of one of my favorite quotes from the worst president in U.S. history Trump is not yet is James Buchanan mm. uh, 1856 1860 he really screwed up. Um, Uh, and he was a pro-South guy but he had this one good point he says I like the noise of democracy and refusing to crush dissenters I like the noise I think we don't respond with one of the questions framing this thing was how can we restore um, the authority of and faith in the media and I feel like with respect the question of how do we as the press prevent that is the idea that we ever had that authority in the first place should have that authority we don't (coughs) <coughs> uh, what we do have is the power to sort of expand the noise of democracy. And,
0: and but, Jeff, a lot, of the, a lot of the coverage of Trump wasn't even coverage. It was just free, free showing of all his rallies on oh, CNN. Well, crap coverage is a different thing. Um, well, I mean, but, but people were watching that, and that's part of what we're talking about with the $2 billion of free stuff. It's not yeah. like people are analyzing and writing about Trump. It's just like, okay, here's Trump for 45 minutes on, on CNN. You,
6: and even then, how many of you had heard in full detail the bullet story? right? Not very many. With this $2 billion of coverage, here is a really horrifying story that not enough people heard, that um, not enough people, it would be sometimes summarized. So with $2 billion of coverage, he was saying things. I think Jason was right. He was saying things and we, we in the media were saying, look at what this guy is bringing. Um, and the reality is people didn't. They tuned out. They didn't watch it.
1: I think there's a little bit of a I don't know if this is a I think that there's a, uh, a like a tendency right now i I mean I'm all for reading and writing tons of stories about media screw ups, but I think we're we're like there isn't one reason, you know, like there it's very, very complicated and um I mean I, I I don't think that the media has well first of all, I don't even know what we mean by the media at this point, but I don't think journalists have we don't have the power we used to have. I mean that's basically we've shown that. I mean that you could uh, and and one of the things for all, for a lot of us is kind of refiguring out the narrative of who we are because we think of ourselves as public servants, and 24 percent of the country like to put us in a cage. So, um, but anyway, I wanted to raise one thing that I that I that I feel is like will be co- is concretely an issue for me on this uh, you know this question of holding a- evangelicals or whatever, holding people accountable. Because I feel like when you're, when you're covering all these issues around religion, identity, and spirituality, there, there's this kind of duality where we're trying to, you know, get people to clarify what they believe. And I mean, having interviewed people about what they believe for 12 years, you know, it's complicated. I mean, if I asked any of you, you'd probably sound like a mess. So, I mean, <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. But anyway, it, let's say that you could get people to say, I believe XXXX. Um, and then, you know, part of the journalism is to hold them responsible for that. And I think there a lot of people are saying, you know, we're not doing enough of that with the uh, people who claim to be pious and, and uh, voted for Trump. And then you also have all of the fluidity around American religion, where we're sitting, a huge part of what we do is totally validating things like mindfulness. And so, I mean, how important do we think, um, like, who, who are we to judge sort of religiosity you know what are the benchmarks of that and I for one don't feel comfortable with that at all I don't see that as my job Um, I don't know exactly I don't see myself as an advocate for anything in particular I mean um, except for telling true you know writing stories that are revelatory
2: I don't think it's our job to judge other people's religiosity I think it's important for us to describe it and then describe where their description of their own religiosity doesn't actually match the way they're living in
1: the world. I don't disagree with that. I just wonder. I mean, sometimes I use my you know focus group of one, which is myself. So you know, I keep kosher in a super messy way. You know, so I mean, ha- what does that mean? You know, I just, I just, I mean, I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. I'm just wondering how to do it. What are good, maybe what are good examples of it? What you said is describing it as opposed to moralizing about it. I, my husband is, I think, a good like, barometer for, for my story sometimes, and he basically said, you know, the problem with religion coverage is it just makes you feel bad, you know? Like, so we've got this moral <laughs> framework thing that is not, um, I, mean, I don't know if this sounds too marketplaceish, but it's not engaging. It's not, you know, I mean, so I think, I'm not, again, I'm not opposed to holding p- people accountable. I'm just
5: trying to look for good models that, um, that are reflective of reality. Um just a couple things. There was a, a, a Columbia Journalism Review study just recently that came out that talked about um, positive negative coverage. It did show that negative coverage of the Clinton campaign was uh, greater than the coverage of the trump negative coverage of the Trump campaign, um, just as a you can look that up. Um, I do think actually, um, some of the crisis that the um, industry and the profession of journalism has been under actually needs to be thankful for this outcome. I think we are having for the first time the really serious discussion about propaganda, AKA fake news. Um, I don't think (coughs) that conversation would have happened if um, we had President Clinton, A President Clinton. Um, I think there are other hard conversations that we have still not uh, tackled, such as the role of artificial intelligence and the role that that plays in driving search, um, particularly how artificial intelligence learns uh, the worst of our <laughs> inclinations, the worst of our searches. So, if you if you search, um, you know, some anti-Semitic phrase, um, you know, Google search, and many people do that. You know, it starts popping up, and uh, this is a huge problem. Uh, you also have the role of artificial intelligence in terms of trying to diversify the outlets so that you have media outlets, um, including CNN, that use bots to uh, run their Snapchat, for instance. I mean, and they're not the only outlet, I mean, there are multiple outlets where artificial intelligence is now being used to help. Uh, as these media outlets struggle to find every single place you know they've had to diversify the places where their content shows uh, shows up to be able to get the number the size audience they need to uh, be able to be profitable um, I also think that um, we're in this huge era of generational change and sometimes I say well people just have to die that's a <laughs> um, but 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 the reality is that um, the first generations of people who have been born and raised in digital only era are, are just you know starting to come to uh, roles of s- significant power and leverage and still just at the very beginning of that process. It doesn't mean that you know old farts like me don't uh, don't know how to use these media, but I do think that when you, uh, like my children who are 23, 22, 17, um, I think that when you are raised in an all digital world, it affects your (coughs) thinking, it affects your attention span, it affects um, all sorts of things that we haven't even begun to grapple with uh, in terms of our our politics, in terms of the election process, in terms of how campaigns are run and where they spend their ad dollars and, and all sorts of things. Uh, and, and it's this like a you know, messy, messy Westworld time, and it's transitional. <laughs> transition doesn't, you know, it, 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 it takes a long time. You think about the transition from radio to television. It took a long time, uh, and this is going to be a long transition. It didn't transition. Uh, what,
0: we have time for... Oh, yeah. What? It just didn't re- transition. Yeah, Eddie. Eddie just yeah. really
4: quickly, yeah. just really quickly. I think... Wait, On the wait, mic, too. Just really quickly. How do we change it? I think, because um, um, I want to get to that part of the question, it has something to do with the demos, right? If we demand better, we will get better, right? And so part of the story that, is that we don't tell, uh, we haven't told in a very thick way, is what happened with <coughs> Bernie Sanders, right? And Bernie Sanders didn't cause anything. He was the result of something. And we kind of get the thing flipped. And I'm really thinking that the energy of Occupy, the energy of Black Lives Matter, what we saw with Bernie Sanders' campaign Right, and what we what we're beginning to see with the exit poll data is not that Donald Trump did something dramatically different. He did in some ways, right? But the same number of white people that voted for Romney voted for him. Right? What happened, at least the data is suggesting to us, is that millennials broke for third parties in interesting sorts of ways in Wisconsin, in in, in Pennsylvania. Right? And, and and then what we <coughs> see, we saw depressed. Voting among minority communities Which had everything to do with voter ID laws In Wisconsin, which had everything to do with voter suppression In North Carolina, which had everything to do with What we've been experiencing over the That had nothing to do with Donald Trump That had something to do with Paul Ryan And something to do with, right, these folks who are now So there's a thicker story To be told, and Steve I hear your point about simple stories But people like Game of Thrones Yeah (laughs) (laughs) Of stuff happening, right? And so I think there is a way in which we can use simple sentences to tell complex stories.
0: Okay, great. On on that note, uh, we are out of our hour and a a half.